Green Pastures are the weekly devotions published by Vineyard Boise, consisting of four parts, the reading, the reflection, the question, and the prayer. Green Pastures for Tuesday, September 20th. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings. Today's scripture reading is found in Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9 from the New International Version, which reads, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. This is God's Word. Welcome to the place in the book of Exodus where many would-be annual readers of the entire Bible in a year sputter and die. It's not necessarily a hill to die on, it's just a hill that most of us do, in fact, die on. The detailed instructions for the construction of the tabernacle and all of its furnishings, including detailed fashion design for the priests officiating within its precincts. Exodus lays it all out there in all of its meticulous glory. Chapter 25, chapter 26, chapter 27, chapter 28, chapter 29, chapter 30, or 224 verses. But then, who's counting? Well, in point of fact, I am. And that's well over twice the length of the Sermon on the Mount that weighs in at 107 verses. And then, guess what? After a brief interlude of significant covenant-breaking stone tablet-smashing infidelity in Exodus chapters 31 through 34, we then have all of that meticulous glory regurgitated, item by item, line by line, cubit by cubit, in Exodus chapter 35, chapter 36, chapter 37, chapter 38, chapter 39, and chapter 40, with another total of 214 verses. Twelve chapters, 438 verses, which, just in case you were wondering, is five verses more than the entire book of Romans. But then who's counting? Well, once again, clearly, I am. This is how they were to build it. And this is how they built it. All of which goes to say that this tent-slash-tabernacle was important. Still, we wonder aloud, couldn't God have just had those early scribes convert all this verbiage into a multi-dimensional blueprint or illustration with all the measures listed? You know, the way we see them in our illustrated study Bibles. Couldn't he have done that? But then I suppose that the whole don't make any images of things on earth or things in heaven, that kind of kicks in, doesn't it? The challenge, of course, is translating all of these building details and dimensions into the actual items described. Like the gaps in dinosaur DNA in Jurassic Park, there are gaps in the tabernacle DNA requiring us to splice it a bit with some imaginative frog DNA, as it were. In other words, the Israelites could build it under Moses' direct supervision, but we're at a bit of a loss when we try to do the same thing using the verbal descriptions, gurgitated, okay, I'm not sure that's actually a word, and then regurgitated in Exodus. 
Make of that what you will. The point I suppose to linger over is the immense amount of precious animal skin space that was used up to record all these details in these Torah scrolls. Leather wasn't and isn't cheap. Prudence would seem to have dictated brevity, or at least an economy of words, or at the very least, employing a one summary sentence after all those initial details to the effect of, and then they did build it, as per all of the preceding specifications. But they didn't. There is no brief summation sentence, leaving us at the very least with the conclusion that this space really matters. Our collective spaces where we encounter God matter. The Torah provides for personal earth and altar space of unhewn stones, simple, accessible, and direct, as well as for the more centralized collective space of the tent or tabernacle with its altar of bronze, among other things. It's actually a bit of a tension within the Torah, personal or collective personal altar of earth wherever you are, or collective altar of brass with restricted access behind tented walls. Eventually that tension was resolved in a deuteronomic one-place-centric focus to which all are directed to come meet with God, at least three times annually in fact, a focus that eventually moved away from a mobile presence to an immobile, stationary one that we call the temple. But that's the next step in this story of the house. And so, as you pause for a moment of reflection and prayer, how would you rate the importance of a collective worship space to you, personally? Why does it matter? On the other hand, why doesn't it? If this has been important to you in the past, but currently, eh, not so much, what accounts for that change? What is the ongoing purpose of a collective space of worship? Once again, our prayer today is taken from the words of Psalm 84, starting with the NIV and finishing with the message. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength, till each appears before God in Zion. One day spent in your house, this beautiful place of worship, beats thousands spent on Greek island beaches. I'd rather scrub floors in the house of my God than be honored as a guest in the palace of sin. All sunshine and sovereign is God, generous in gifts and glory. He doesn't scrimp with his traveling companions. It's smooth sailing all the way with God of the angel armies. Selah.